It's November 2nd, 2023. This is Rook. So 293 of Rook. I'm Shian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto. Salam Dustan Aziz. Durut Episode 293. If you factor in the 0.5 episodes we've been doing recently. <laughs> and the at? entire contemporary history of Iran, which was a different set of numbers. Right. I mean, we're well into the 300s. We should be over the 300s. Where are you from? Where are you from? Sure we have. Yeah. We've got bonus content. That's right. We've got bonus content. Sisanta episode dash team. That's right. Vishas Sisanta episode. Vishas Sisanta. Oh. Oh. Look at you. You've like getting thrown in the beach there. The Vishas. Yeah. I hope you're doing well wherever you're tuning in from around the world. World. This program is about talking to Iranians, talking to you about being Iranian, building and understanding our evolving Iranian identity especially outside of Iran. It's for non-Iranians as well, but I wanted to say the word Iranian as many times as possible mm-hmm. um, to really drive home the point. Home. Conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. Pega Jun. That's right. Hi, smart Pega. Hello. You know, the title of this episode uh, is A World on Fire. Mm-hmm. An extremely uncreative... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a... True a, nonetheless. But right... Doesn't it feel like... Yes, it does. It just feels like we're just... I mean, everything is blowing up mm-hmm. somehow, right? It does. But we're going to tr- try and keep it light today. Is that what we were doing? We're going to try, even though the episode we have is the, called... We, we have the co-founder of the Center for Human Rights in Iran yes. to keep it light. <laughs> <laughs> really trying. Hadi uh, Qaimi. I'm really actually uh, happy to have him back on the show. A really uh, eloquent um, speaker on... Iranian affairs, particularly with respect to human rights, mm-hmm. uh, had years of experience at Human Rights Watch and now started the Center for Human Rights in Iran a few years ago. And um, a lot of experience mm-hmm. in doing what he does and a lot of perspective that comes with that. So he's coming on to talk about, I mean, we've been talking about this in our in our roundups and our roundtables, uh, the recent very sad death of Armita mm-hmm. Geramand, who uh, the, the teenager who the, this year's another Massa Amini kind mm-hmm. of case uh, confrontation with hijab police on a Tehran subway ends up in a coma brain dead and now dead okay. and then the aftermath of that the horrific sort of toying with the people of Iran around whether they can even have a funeral mm-hmm. um, based on not wanting any negative publicity to get out about this regime so the funeral is held with a, a whole bunch of plainclothes police there Officers, and uh, watching yeah. things. Nasrin Sotudeh, the famous human rights lawyer, turns up, refuses to wear a hijab, gets detained. And I think there's some violent confrontation where she's now tortured and she's back mm-hmm. in prison. And um, the whole thing is uh, a testament to how as much as progress has been made in terms of shifting the goalposts over the last year since the most recent uprising mm-hmm. uh, with the killing of Massa Amini in the aftermath. 
Um, we're still sort of in the midst of all this. In fact, one of my titles for today's show was going to be, Are We Back Where We Started? Mm-hmm. Although I thought that was too reductive in the sense that of course we're not you know yeah. there's there's progress has been made and in, in, in lots of ways in terms of maybe even in part educating people of the world mm-hmm. if not the governments of the world but um but in the, but sometimes it can feel that way right for sure that the, the the regime in iran now using this war this horrific situation in, in with israel and hamas um to to preach uh, I don't know liberation, you know, <laughs> theology, uh, which uh, is a joke. Using that as a, as their both as their scapegoat and excuse to show their virtue, mm-hmm. uh, and in the meantime, um, carrying out extremely repressive and suppressive activities ongoing um, that continue to make Iran one of the the most horrendous violators of human rights in the world right Mm -hmm. i mean i agree with you i think it almost feels like one step forward two steps back and that's what we've we've been seeing and feeling for the last year and a half but nasrin sotada is back in jail another young woman is killed i mean it's hard not to be deflated by all Mm -hmm. this but hopefully it's two steps forward one step back not the other what did i say it the other way you said one step forward two (laughs) steps back which would be understandable yeah yeah yeah, I mean, the deflation is, is the one thing that I definitely think everyone has, has felt. But I, I personally try to constantly remind myself that at the very least, we've had further education on what the Islamic Republic is really all about. Um, and I'm not talking just Iranians. I'm talking non-Iranians, in fact. They've been able to see, you know, what the Islamic Republic is, is like and what the atrocities that they continue to commit within the country and spreading it outside of Iran as well, as we that see with... That would be the hope. That would be the hope, although I will bring this up with Hadi Khaimi, uh, joining us from New York in just a little bit, that what I brought up on Monday on our bonus podcast mm-hmm. about the, the foreign minister, Abdullahian, uh, the Islamic Republic foreign minister, you know, uh, uh, the guy I affectionately called a buffoon at one point <laughs> last year. That, that guy, you know, on CNN, the language he was using... Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to liberate Palestine, we're for the Palestinians, you know, all of this stuff, to the untrained, uneducated, I don't even mean uneducated, there's a lot of people, even active, so-called activists in the West, that don't know the situation in Iran, don't know what this regime is all about, are sort of parroting the talking points of the left uh, on student campuses, etc., and might look at this guy and go, oh, he's he's our ally, Mm -hmm. he's our friend, he supports the Palestinian people, when... We know that the Islamic Republic of Iran does not support anyone except for (laughs) its own activities and maybe Hamas and Hezbollah to carry out the revolution, uh, the Islamic revolution. And only to further their own activities, not even because they want to actually support even them. Yeah. Not to mention anybody who, you know, uh, who supports Israel, etc. There's a a new edict Mm -hmm. in Iran this past week. I'll put this to Hadi Rami as well, although I, I suspect this won't surprise him <laughs> or for anybody. Yeah. There's a new edict that you cannot, in Iran, express support, mm-hmm. like presumably online or in the streets or something like that. You cannot say something positive about Israel. It will be a criminal offense. Ridiculous. Thought police, right? It's, it's like, you know. I mean, we, ha- we have them policing just about everything else, yeah. you know. Some people would argue those kind of that that kind of thought police stuff happens in the West now too, in a different way. Mm-hmm. But but you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's 
Yeah. Uh, so, Hadi Rami joining us in a little bit from New York. Um, we're going to get to all of those the topics of the week. Uh, I, I had a, uh, an interesting start to my day. I was looking forward to, now, the, the Beatles. Mm-hmm. You know who the Beatles are, right? Yes. Because I know sometimes you're... <laughs> You spent so much time listening to Andy growing up. That's right. And uh, I don't know. Actually, Ebby, but yeah. Ebby, all right. That you're, I mean, you might not know your John Lennon from mm-hmm. your Paul McCartney, right? <laughs> so there was a band called the Beatles. Yes. Uh, in the eyes of many Iranians, the uh, a lesser band to Pink Floyd. <laughs> so these guys um, had this, you know, they're, they're the most important band ever mm-hmm. if you're into rock and pop music. Right. They existed until 1970, mm-hmm. right? And then they put out, they, they all did solo records. Mm-hmm. And then John Lennon was killed right. in 1979. And then George Harrison tragically died about 22 years ago mm-hmm. uh, of cancer, I think. So there's two remaining Beatles. Right. But they found this demo of, I don't know why I'm explaining this. If, if people who already know this story, if they've over the last 24 hours they've heard this, and if not, maybe they're not interested. But the point is, there's a new Beatles song. Mm-hmm. The new last Beatles song, as uh, Sean Lennon, who's the son of John Lennon, uh, said. And this song, so it comes out today, so they, they yesterday they put out this little 10 minute, I mean, I feel like a bit of a victim of the, of the marketing here, you know, like for sure it's a hype project, you know, but I also kind of, I love Paul McCartney. Like I think he, and, and Ringo, like I think they're, I've been, had the chance to interview Paul McCartney a couple Mm -hmm. of times. He couldn't be nicer. He really could not have been a nicer man. And I somehow believe in a world full of people that we've learned to distrust. I trust Paul McCartney. (laughs) Like I think his heart is in the right place with this song. God love you, Paul, Sir Paul McCartney. So, uh, although probably not an Arsenal fan because he's from Liverpool, but there's your, we, can <laughs> hey, eat, we did a bell got, or something. Everyone's got the, flaws. The Arsenal reference of the day. <laughs> anyway, so yesterday there was this little documentary mm-hmm. that came out, uh, this 10 minute thing explaining that this song is going right. to come out. And I, I think they, I think they put that out to, in order for people to know that this, the story behind this, mm-hmm. to know that it's not fabricated somehow right. and that everybody's on board like Yoko John Lennon's wife uh, gave the demo to the Beatles so so you know that they're not exploiting John or George mm-hmm. you know and the demo which was on cassette demo was on cassette which is so and, cool and AI plays a role in here yeah because right? now they've figured out it's weird Peter Jackson the Lord of the Rings guy mm-hmm. he's the guy who, who helped who fig- has figured out how to yeah. t- how to uh, you can the, on, a, on an old demo on a cassette where there's um, a piano playing and John Lennon's voice scratchy mm-hmm. really hard to hear. They've learned how to use AI to separate the piano track from the vocal, so that they could use the vocal for the song. It's not the best vocal performance, but even then, that affects me because what happened to me today. I started crying. Really? Well, I waited for the song to come out, and then I went to my friendly neighborhood uh, music streaming service on my computer, <laughs> and, and uh, I'm not going to say which one. Why promote it? Right. Although we are on Spotify. I was so say. I went to Spotify. We're also on <laughs> We're Apple. We're also on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, and SoundCloud. So anyway, <laughs> and Instagram and uh, Crave. What Cast I say the one? Castbox, yeah. So not Crave. So uh, I went to Spotify. Right. I started listening to the song. Mm-hmm. I started crying. 
for a for a number of reasons. Okay. One, John Lennon's voice. Uh, just to hear his voice, that combined with the lyric. Mm-hmm. Like if you put this into perspective, two of them are dead. The Beatles' greatest band in history. They're you know the ones who are alive are in their seventies now mm-hmm. or maybe eighties uh, and. Um, I think eighties actually, and and there's John Lennon singing "Now and Then I'll Miss You." You know, it's the 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 lyrics are are very emotive and mm-hmm. moving and beautiful. And then Paul McCartney, who played bass in the Beatles, okay, the Beatles were a band, right? Right, and they each played instruments. I, I got that point. Oh. <laughs> I I just realized they're not modern talking, so you might not know these things. So. Paul McCartney, you can hear he's kind of doing the Paul McCartney bass right. on this. I mean, for sure they're doing this intentionally. Like Ringo uh, plays drums and he does a very Ringo type drum fill. Like, you know, that's a very Beatles-y. <laughs> so they were kind of, we're going to make this a Beatles song. Right. Then George Harrison, who died 22 years ago, when they first found this demo in the 90s, mm-hmm. George Harrison did a slide guitar solo part to it. They've resuscitated that. So he's on it. So all four Beatles are on the song. You can tell from my excitement that I think this is... This is this incredible. Is, well, it's, it's <laughs> no, but, cool. But I mean... It is. I mean, I'm not a huge Beatles fan, as you right. can tell by yeah. my silence here. You, you, because you don't understand music. Yeah, go fair. ahead. Yeah. But... Um, you know, hearing this and hearing the story behind it and actually watching that video that they put out yesterday, yeah. I was amazed at the yeah. fact that, you know, the the concept of the fact that, like you said, two of them have passed away, all four of them are on this song, the story behind the way that, you know, John Lennon's wife handed the cassette over, they started working on this in the 90s, yeah. and then they had to abandon the project, and then now with the help of AI, they were now, able to why, do this. Why is it, why is all of this, why does it all work? Do you know Why? emotions no because it's a good song it's a good because they were really really you know they were the best Mm -hmm. for how these four came together and you know so what happened in the universe what magic brought these guys together especially Lennon McCartney the the chief songwriters but the other two too I mean George Harrison so uh, I I mean it's a great song I think it's a really great song song. it's a really it's a a good so anyway I I start crying and then I was thinking about our, our show and I was thinking about even though we did the Pink Floyd series. Mm -hmm. This is interesting timing because, of course, earlier in the week, uh, Matthew Perry from Friends died. And on Monday's episode, we talked about the connection that Iranians feel to Mm -hmm. the sitcom, the series, the American series Friends, and particularly to Chandler Bing. Mm -hmm. Well, they feel it to all the characters. But but Chandler was a big, you know, clearly, as evidenced by, you know, Roham was telling me, if you go to Chandler's, or (laughs) Chandler, Matthew Matthew. Perry's... um, the late Matthew Perry's like social media or something right. and you look at the comments there's a whole bunch of Iranian oh, like yeah. there's like in Farsi people yeah. commenting I mean, you know the entire world is like <laughs> mourning this guy but the, and Iranians are at the forefront you know of the mm-hmm. of mourning a, a, a loss of a character from Friends and and the the actor um, but I was thinking about that and I was thinking about the Beatles and I know I don't jump on me especially if you're somebody who is alive in the 70s or if you're older than, than me and you were alive when the Beatles were around. But but I don't think the Beatles were, a, I mean, they were known in Iran, mm-hmm. but from all of the anecdotal evidence and all the I've done over the last few years, um, they definitely weren't as big as, like, say, Pink Floyd. Yeah. Like, there are, you can usually go up to an Iranian and, you know, they can probably sing you or, or, or cite a, a Pink Floyd song. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how many Beatles songs they can do. 
They can definitely tell you modern modern talking songs. Uh, well, I was gonna say. I mean, you know, <sighs> we, we joke about this, but that's just the reality. Is I that that guy's gig is like <laughs> tonight or something, wasn't it? The guy from Modern Talking, I don't the know. one I don't of the two members of maybe they'll find a cassette of Modern Talking and do a new song <laughs> posthumously in a few years. Anyway, so <laughs> so so it's interesting to me to to, to, to these iconic characters mm-hmm. uh, one and the cast member of friends and the beatles and and what makes it through into the the popular culture um stream of the dna of of iranian culture over the last 45 years um inside the iron gates of the islamic republic mm-hmm. you know uh, that filters out some especially for those first 20 years for the yeah. the 80s and the or first half of the 90s when nothing was kind of getting in and people had to you know listen to their older brothers pink floyd records and mm-hmm. that type of thing uh I don't know how big a deal it is for Iranians that there's a new Beatles song in comparison to Chandler dying. I, I think Chandler still takes... Of course. Yeah. I mean, especially with the conversation that we had on Monday where, you know, the, the concept of using friends to learn English and to better understand kind of the North American context and, and relate to them despite the fact that there's so many differences... I think those are the reasons why we've seen such an impact with Matthew Perry passing and, and yeah. seeing how Iranians have kind of started sure. to talk about. Their and by the way, we posted a little thing on our Instagram uh, to to promote the episode, and it was like a picture of Matthew Perry, and you know it got it started to get more likes than any of our normal mm-hmm. episodes. People were like, "Oh, Chandler! Chandler! <laughs> we weren't that interested in you guys before, but now <laughs> with Chandler, uh, so yeah, they're the the and new Beatles song." Very, very moving. If you so happen to be inclined and you haven't heard it yet, by the time you hear this uh, podcast, maybe you will have. And um, maybe you'll share um, my sentiments and shed a tear. <laughs> uh, now, and I, I don't even know, I can't tell yet whether this song, Now and Then, this Beatles song, mm-hmm. is going to be one that I'm going to be playing forever, that I'm going to be two years from now. You know, I, I don't, I, I can't tell if the emotion of it is part of being caught up in just hearing some new material. Right. You know, when Bowie died, and or actually not when Bowie died, when Bowie came back with his first, David Bowie came back with his first album in 2013 after um, disappearing for a few years. He'd had heart issues and mm-hmm. he was sort of, and no one expected it and suddenly Bowie, and I was so emotional and I went on the air on CBC and did this whole tribute to Bowie. Um, that, uh, and I was like, this is amazing music. I still believe that's amazing music. I don't know what this Beatles song is. hard for me to tell. Mm-hmm. Like next it- year, are we going to be listening back going, what a classic or not? But I feel like, I mean, it's already number one on iTunes. Right. It's going to be something that is going to get out there and will be played a lot. Maybe it'll be used in a movie soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And so it's already kind of an iconic song. You know, well, I think it's, it's been like, out for a few hours. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's iconic just because of the sheer fact that, you know, two of the band members are, are dead. Right. And yet they've they've put this song together. Which so two members? Paul McCartney and George no, Harrison. No, 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 John no Lennon, Paul McCartney John is Lennon not dead. George Harrison. Gosbegir. <laughs> Jesus. John Lennon and, and, and George And who are Harrison. the members of Modern Talking? I don't right. know. I John really Lennon don't and actually. George Harrison. That's correct. Yes. <sighs> so it's an early Christmas present. Yes. Even though Christmas is a long way away. It's so far away. We're not even in Christmas territory and yet, yet. And yet. And yet. I've been hearing Christmas songs and... You were telling me about this, the Mariah Carey... Oh my gosh. ...did something video. that... This is this is a disease in our 
in our there, Western capitalist society. There's that, actually that a we're, name we're for literally it. two months away from Christmas. Yeah. I know it's it's not quite as big a deal for people who are, who are listening to us inside Iran, but mm-hmm. you know, Christmas is like the the I don't know Western version of Noruz. Like you know, we build up to it. We have a big Christmas, right. obviously, and but it's two months away still. No one wants to hear these shitty Christmas songs, and yet. <laughs> Christmas well, songs. maybe not. Well, I like the Mariah Carey. I like the Mariah Carey. Everyone likes that song. Yeah. But you know, the Christmas carols. I mean, it's a disaster. You don't want to hear that stuff mm-hmm. for two months. Well, what you were saying, there's actually a name for this disease, if you will. It's called the Christmas creep. Okay. And so the concept behind the Christmas creep it, it comes from consumerism, and it's the concept where retailers will start as early as possible to put their merchandise out and to try. We and just had Halloween. We just had so Halloween. they they spent a couple of months selling us. Star- Starbucks coffees that were Halloween themed. Yes. Right? S Starbucks. And then right and, as and soon now as... now we're going into Christmas. Exactly. Yeah. The video that you mentioned, I, I want to talk about this because I thought it describes... What this, video did I mention? The Mariah Carey oh, video. Oh, right. There's a video. Yeah. So okay. there's this video for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, there's a video of Mariah Carey and um, she's in a block of ice. So she's frozen. Mm-hmm. And there's a timer above her head counting down and it shows October 31st 11:58 or 59 p.m. and it's just like a, a running clock. Oh, I said I didn't see and this. And the minute that it strikes midnight, so it becomes November 1st, this ice all of a sudden cracks and she comes out singing. All I want for Christmas <laughs> is you. So you're allowed to now play that song. You are That's the idea. Well, I guess right. if we're going based on Christmas. It's pretty self-serving Creek. of Mariah Carey. <laughs> Who has a number one song each year because the song keeps going it's number like one. It's like the highest earning like Christmas yeah. song ever in the history of the world. Oh, yeah, Christmas music. Michael Bublé's Christmas album is his biggest album. Yeah. Yeah, for well, sure. Well, Mariah Carey's won like three Guinness World Records because of her Christmas album or something like that because of how many times it's top it's charts number one. and it's gotten number one. Have yourself a very... I mean, really though? Like it's two months away, right? Yeah. There's also... So, so yeah, but don't you think uh, there's we there's sort of a version of that with no ruse too. There like is. Like by by the time it's January, the preparations are afoot. <laughs> People mean, are looking for their the, which shoes they're going to buy for the. I don't know if I would say as far as January, but just because of the sheer nature of how we celebrate no ruse and setting the half scene and having to prepare things. So, for example, if you're growing sprouts, sabzi. Sabze. Jeez, what is wrong with Sabze? Sabze, yes. Mm. If you're growing I thought that was sabze. when you have kind of brown skin. <laughs> sabze. You can say that to someone. Okay. You're like darker tone. So that's, it's brown skin or <laughs> little brown sprouts. Skin. It's your, your darker tone. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was like brownish skin. I like it. When yeah. Somebody, yeah, I want to be Sabze. It's olive it looks, tone. It looks is, awesome. Is really yeah, all right. It is. It's but a free tan. You don't have to go to the tanning place. <laughs> Um, but what I was saying is that, yeah, for, with no ruse, if you are setting up to, to set up your half scene, then uh, obviously you have to prepare a couple of weeks in advance. We have the whole concept of spring cleaning that's ahead of no ruse. So, you know, we have real reasons for actually celebrating no ruse ahead of time with Christmas. It's just consumerism. That's not true. Kind of. Christmas, you have to, you know, get the tree. The How lights, long does it take you to set the, up a tree? The, the, you know, you have to buy gifts, <laughs> yes. stockings. Mm-hmm. Come on. Mm-hmm. 
Actually, I, I read a report that says that some psychoanalysts have actually linked the early setup of Christmas decor to the declining and dire situation of current society, like today's society. So there's so much stress and anxiety that oh, people are sure. setting up for, for Christmas sure. sooner and sooner because it brings them joy and happiness. But I do see a theme here. You're annoyed by the Christmas stuff, right? No, I'm not annoyed by oh. it. But, well, well, but in my, in my house, the rule is December 1st is right. when we set up Christmas stuff. What does that mean? That's when you put the lights outside the house? Yeah, we put the lights outside. We set up the tree. See, I thought this was a new trend because you declared on Monday that you hate Halloween. No, I hate Halloween as an adult. I Mm -hmm. love Halloween for kids. Mm -hmm. I love being at home and handing out candy. Did you hand out candy? I did. Uh Uh-huh. And I wore my badge. Did you? I did. Because I feel like maybe you turned off the lights and pretended not to be home. No, are you kidding me? Right. We decorated the house. It was wonderful. We had I had a lot of kids this year in my yeah. house. In my area, I've got a lot of young, young kids. and uh, I noticed we have some Halloween candy out in the, uh, in the office. Yeah, I... <laughs> well, let me tell you what happened with Halloween. Oh, I'm going to get... We got to get to Hadi Khami. But what happened with Halloween was I bought a lot of candy for the kids. Because mm-hmm. I know we have a lot of kids in our area. And I put on my pirate hat. Yeah. You know, that was my costume. <laughs> Like, right. uh, like a couple of kids actually were like, are you a pirate? Like looking at me like, why are you just wearing the hat? hat. Where's the rest of the outfit? But I thought it would be festive. So right. I wore the hat. So I bought a whole bunch of, and I thought I'm going to buy the, the chocolate bars. You mm-hmm. know, we talked about this as a kid, you know, you hate the families, the, yeah. the, the places that give you the nonsense, you know, you the want raisins. chocolate bars. Yeah. Raisins. I hated the houses you know, or, with the raisins. Yeah. Or something healthy. Yeah. No, we don't want that. Or even the, um, what are those thin little... The rockets. Rockets, yeah. yeah. The rockets. The nobody little, likes the nobody rockets. Nobody wants those. You want chocolate bars. Exactly. But, you know, and now... And I don't think we had these when we were young. Uh, I think there, there was like... Now there's... You can buy these we, packages. I'm, I'm younger than you. What Sorry, you yeah. Uh, when I was young. <laughs> when I was young, I don't think I'm we joking. had packages of like 100 really tiny chocolate bars. I right. think we were, they were like medium-sized or large and we, that was the win. Mm-hmm. Now you give out these tiny the, little... The minis. Minis, yeah. yeah. It's like the size of Gand. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, tiny, like like really small. Anyway, so uh, I bought a whole bunch of that stuff, and I was thinking, you know, I, I kind of even calculated. I figured we were going to have about 150 kids, mm-hmm. right? So I bought like 450, the equivalents of 450 little pieces of chocolate bars, right. so that I could give three to each of the to kids. Each of the kids, right? So then, uh, early on, I was uh, my philosophy was. Let the kids choose because there's a. The, I, I had a big bowl with all the chocolate bars in it, mm-hmm. right? So I was like, I'll I'll hold out the bowl in my pirate hat, <laughs> right? And then the kid, and I'll say, you take what you want. So like the third kid that comes up, this little <laughs> snotty face, you know, privileged kid, goes okay and like and takes puts his two hands in the bowl oh, wow. and like scoops out. <laughs> probably 50 chocolate bars and puts them in his bag right <laughs> so then i'm like fuck this these kids your calculations these kids today just, yeah my calculations are already yeah skewed now i don't have 400 left right? <laughs> <laughs> so then from then on i decide well, i'm gonna hand out the kid the, the chocolate bars the chocolate, right yeah. i will i will manage the chocolate bar distribution none of these kids are just gonna come take their chocolate right. bars so the kids are coming, and I thought I'm being, look at me, I, how great I am. I started giving them, and I also didn't know, now maybe there's going to, what if there's 200 kids? Mm-hmm. And I've already, the one kid took 50 of the. So now you have to limit. I, I had my calculator, my, you know, I was trying to do the calculations, <laughs> I got 400. There's a kid waiting at the door, and Gian's like, hold on, let yeah. me count. <laughs> so, so I was like, I'll give them two each. Right. Right? Two little. 
So, so, so the kids are coming, and I go, okay, here's two for you. Two for you. Some of them were really, oh, thank you. And then there's always the parents are always there. Mm-hmm. Also, when I was a kid, the parents wouldn't accompany us because so those were safer days. Yes. It was the 20th century. Now in the 21st century, there's the, oh, yeah. the parent stands at the end of this driveway because mm-hmm. you know, and we don't even my area is a relatively safe area, but still, I think yeah. they're recommended to. So the and then the parent says, "What do you say?" And then the kid has to say, "Thank you, Happy Halloween," you know. So then I so I'm giving out these two, and then at one point I notice a kid kind of looking at me a little, you know, like, sideways. Give me, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I've got this huge bowl, and I'm only giving them two each, two you know, because yeah. the one kid ruined it for everybody. He, he took fifty. <laughs> the the, the Superman kid. kid. It was a bad Superman costume too. Is a little blonde kid, a Superman kid. You anyway, know, you know what I had a problem with? We had kids like. I was gonna say to his parents, <laughs> I was gonna say, "Hey, who is this? Your kid? He just took fifty of the chocolate bars." Okay, what were we gonna say? Shaming the parents. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say uh, we had some of like the older kids show up in our neighborhood, uh, and they weren't even wearing costumes. Oh no! Don't get me started on the older kids. And I was kids. like. Oh, at least put something don't on, get me started at least make a badge and put it around your neck yeah no that, after 9 p.m when they turn up and they're like yeah. trick or treat and you're like you're 20 why honestly some of why them am look I, older than me and that's I was like, right that's Whoa. right but then you're kind of scared too like, like <laughs> take take whatever you need to take oh, here's the chocolate leave me alone here's your chocolate yeah and there was a one one girl uh i couldn't tell uh she was a young woman who who came in a kind of like a hijab you know but i think it was her costume right because like the two kids on there was three girls (laughs) the two kids on on either side of her Uh were wearing costumes and then she was wearing a hijab it might be that she's just religious and right but But was was she wearing anything else like costume wise not totally but but there's two there's three kids they're young you know they're probably 10 or something and one of them is wearing a hijab in the middle mm-hmm. and the other two are wearing like costumes like i'm an angel i'm spider-man like that right right so i guess it was the costume i think she just had a really creative costume and you didn't get that it. maybe but then <laughs> afterwards i was gonna like when they left i wanted to question her i was like why are you wearing the hijab or is this a commentary on <laughs> do you know has been. I mean, I appreciate it if you're religious, but I mean, you're young. I don't know what. Yeah. So anyway, I give out the two candies to the yeah. kids. And then one of the kids uh, uh, who was kind of looking at me sideways, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, oh, what's up? And then I start looking in the bags. Some of these kids have full on chocolate bars. Yeah, like the full the size big chocolate ones. Who's I mean, giving out the big chocolate bars? Well, They're shaming us. It's so so then I realize I'm actually being kind of stingy. Yeah. But I realized with the minis. Oh, just giving two little minis. Like that probably they walked away and they were like, Oh this guy. get a load of Gomeshi with the pirate hat. First of all, he doesn't even have a real costume on. He put a hat on. And then second of all, he gives us two little oh Henry's, you know? Yeah. And so I, I was left with a bunch of candy because by the time I realized I should just giving be giving them three or four. Mm-hmm. It would. There weren't enough kids left, you know. So too late. I have a yeah. So I brought well, some here. We'll, we'll end up eating it. There were some people handing out soda, like two liter soda bottles or something. What? Yeah. Huh. Apparently, this started in the states where some guy who could afford to give these full chocolate bars. That's I what I want to know. And these kids. I mean, <laughs> we never the scooping got the <laughs> full size like that. Yeah, we did. So there was always the one, the one house yeah, that the cool would give house. you that, and you were just like, those people are the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. Um, all right, listen, we have to get to 
Hadi Gaimi. Let's do a quick uh, roundup uh, before we do, because and I think I suspect what we're going to talk about ties in with with um, having Hadi on the show. So mm-hmm. you were uh, he, he uh, the founder of um, the Center for Human Rights in Iran, and talking about the situation there. You were going to for the roundup. I think your your item today was to talk about the uh, Islamic Republic becoming the chair of the human. <laughs> UN Human Rights Council Social Forum. That's this, right. this is just, you can't script this stuff, right? Honestly, I mean, I, and I know we've talked about this. We've seen the Islamic Republic at the UN before, but um, this appointment actually originally came out in May. Um, and the president of the United Nations Human Rights Council, um, you know, was the one to appoint uh, Ali Bahraini, who's the ambassador of the Islamic Republic, to this, to this position. And so since May, we've seen uh, different... Um, groups, different organizations, different nonprofits, kind of lobbying for this decision to be overturned. And not only was it not overturned, it was strongly um, defended. And we saw even Joseph Borrell, who's the EU foreign affairs chief, uh, put out a statement kind of saying that, you know, this is consistent with established UN procedures and it's a matter of rotation. And I mean, even if that were true, which, by the way, there's there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not that's true. Um, The U.N. Watch actually reported that the group in which Iran belongs to in Mm. this rotation of theirs has actually been in this position four times in the last six years, um, excluding other regions. So I don't know how true this whole rotational procedure thing is. But I mean, it's even it's inconceivable for any official from the Islamic Republic to be at the United Nations talking about human rights. And for someone like Joseph Burrell or anyone else within the EU, the UN, any of these organizations to want to defend that yeah. is just mind-blowing to me. Yeah. It, uh, and, but, and even uh, there was an, an American official that didn't they release a statement saying this is a... This is a joke or this is comic. Yep, or they did. But I mean, even that, it, it's on one hand, it's like you're saying, you know, this is comic. But then on the other hand, you're also a member state yeah. who's done nothing to overturn this, this this decision. Or I know we say this a lot. We said it a lot, a lot last year, especially when it came to kids dying in Iran and UNICEF and all that. Mm-hmm. But, but it's one, one wants to take the UN seriously because you think it can be a, a really important tool. And we've had guests on who've made the argument, look, we need to you know, activate the UN, someone like Oza de Rojan mm-hmm. in Sweden saying, well, let's get, let's get the UN, uh, um, let's, let's hold them accountable, let's get them involved. You know? But on the other hand, you just, you just kind of have to at some point think, what a joke this is. It's yeah. a, there's no, how can it have any credibility? The Human Rights Council? Exactly. I mean, and Iran is gonna be chairing this. I mean, the Islamic Republic has Nobel Peace Prize winners behind bars. We have, literally, yeah, literally, yeah. literally, have, the people, the two, the two most prominent women right now are uh, in in Iran. Dissidents are behind bars. Mm-hmm. One of them, the Nobel Peace Prize winner. One of them, the Sakharov Prize winner. Exactly. Uh, and and yeah, they're going to stand at the UN and, and right. talk about human rights. I mean, I think it's just confirming that the, the problem I have with this is that it confirms, despite the human rights violations that the Islamic Republic has in and of itself, they still have a place within the ecosystem of the UN due to procedure. That, right. That's the part of it that right. boggles my mind. I, I wanted to say one thing before as well, before we get to Hadi Khaimi. Did you see the, um, I, I told you about that New York Times article yes. yesterday. Did you look at it? I did. Yeah. So this this so the New York Times, uh, you know, I mean, runs an article yesterday, uh, prominent, mm-hmm. prominent piece 
uh, and with with a bizarre headline saying Iran now faces a dilemma because of the Iran uh, the Israel Hamas war. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dilemma being, I don't know whether to be ethical or not. It's like, really? A dilemma? You know, there. So, but the idea was whether Iran gets involved in a war or not. Mm-hmm. The piece was written, uh, I believe, in an extremely sort of one sided way. The, the writer being uh, conspicuously somebody we've talked about <laughs> in the past, so perhaps not. And, and by the way, the writer being criticized in the past for being seen as cozy with or an agent of or somehow colluding with or somehow soft on the regime in Iran, which this article bears out, I believe. But even more so, uh, if a picture tells a thousand words, uh, there's five pictures with these thousand words. Mm -hmm. And the photos that are used in the article, first of all, there's this is the delta between what the Islamic Republic regime says. This is what we were trying to teach the world for many years now, and especially during the uprising of the last year, we thought we had gotten somewhere mm-hmm. with, there's a difference between the government and the people. There's a difference between the regime and the people of Iran. Mm-hmm. Don't mix them up and don't assume they're the same and they don't think and feel the same things. So this article, first of all, it has a picture of Abdullahian. I feel like he gets a lot of airtime these days <laughs> yeah. on our show, but that the foreign minister, it couldn't, I mean, it's like a, it's like an eight by ten that you use outside the club when you're performing. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful photo the of this guy. The nicest photo he's got, probably. He's like lounging on a chair, and it's a you know it's a, a nicely shot cover. It's kind of like really, this is the photo that you want to run of this guy. Yeah. These are all decisions that get made. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, surely there's a photo. You don't if you if you don't want to seem like you're being too subjective, you don't have to run the horrific photo of him looking like he's doing the Hitler salute or something like that, but. This photo, really? You know, so then there's that. And then there's four other photos along the accompanying this article. All of them are from inside Iran, mm-hmm. and all of them indicating uh, Iranians supporting Hamas and the death to Israel and the, 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 the Palestinian cause, let's mm-hmm. say. Uh, now, there may be some people in Iran who support Hamas. There may even be people who are out there saying death to Israel, but there's a lot of people who aren't saying that. That's right. And there's a lot of people who either, you know, take a humanitarian approach to this or support Israel. I mean, Mm -hmm. and to only show Iranians supporting Hamas, I mean, really, New York Times? That's what now, this is the latest thing now. We have to go back to re-educating people Mm -hmm. that not all Iranians are running around the world going, yay, Hamas, Hezbollah. I mean, I wouldn't even go that far. The first thing that I noticed when I looked at the article was, you know, if you took away the New York Times headline, like their logo, and if you didn't know what the article was, where it was coming from, the images alone, you would have thought this was an article in like press TV or press whatever, the the state-sponsored um, oh, online journal. Fars, Fars TV. Yeah, right. something like that, because the images are straight Fars. out of 
the the textbook of Islamic Republic yeah. state media. I mean, all the images are exactly the type of images that you that we've seen and we know the Islamic Republic wants to show people. That's what they want people to think Iran is. And if you look at any other publication or any other media outlet when they're reporting on Iran, there's so many other images that they've used. Yeah. Images that, you know, someone like me can relate to when saying, oh, okay, that's a bunch of Iranians even inside Iran. I think it was a very deliberate um, choice of images for and sure. And why is that? Right. That's the. I mean. Yeah. You. You know. Uh, do we just buy into the? It must be that uh, there's that this is a a way to so- soften the image of the the regime or to to not show dissent in Iran, not show mm-hmm. the the amount that people want to get rid of this regime or or to just you know show the world in black and white and this is a country that of Muslims that must be opposed to anybody that isn't Muslim. I I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I do hold the writer accountable and the editors accountable Absolutely. because what kind of a, you, you know, that, that that's clearly not the only. Uh, no, it's false representation. It is. For sure. It really is. And by any account. Um, if you just, you know, it, and and again, it reminds me of the argument. Now, I, let me bring this up with Hadi Ghalami as well. But it reminds me of what I was saying about Abdullah Hion on, on CNN. Mm-hmm. About the notion that because again, if people see, we can't expect. There's a lot going on in the world. Mm-hmm. You know how how much do you and I know about the nuances of what's happening in Ukraine mm-hmm. and who's in charge and who the second in command is and what they represent? Absolutely. And we don't, right? Yeah. We don't know those things because we're not in the Ukrainian community. We we haven't done the education. We haven't. We mm-hmm. so we kind of rely on whatever media that we trust to go okay well that's must be what's happening and let me support these poor people and that was horrible what happened there and and so if you're not invested in what's going on in iran and certainly if you're not iranian Mm -hmm. you don't have any you know we can't expect you to be up up to date on everything you're looking at something like this and going oh okay yeah yeah the the iranians are are pro hamas people you know (laughs) they're all pro and and, or even at at the very best they're all um on the palestinian side of the equation Mm -hmm. uh again i mean i'm sure many iranians are very sympathetic and and their hearts are going out to palestinians who've been killed in 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 gaza but this is this is this is a a narrative that's being put out there mm-hmm. by the so the self-proclaimed newspaper of record right it's not it's not some sort of organ it's not msnbc the mm-hmm. liberal network or fox news this is the new york times and the problem right? i have is that the writer is iranian that that's yeah. the biggest problem i have with this yeah all right thank you pega thank you see you for our bonus podcast on monday yes i don't think it's gonna be a bonus anymore and we just just what are we calling it now? monday roundtable <laughs> Because, uh, but anyway, we'll we'll figure that out. We'll discuss whether it's a bonus. Uh, We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. You can link to all of our platforms, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, a couple of these platforms where you can hear the new Beatles song. I figured they need my help promoting (laughs) Beatles, an upstart kind of group. Uh, Even though they're number one already within the last few hours. That was the joke. Yeah, they're not an upstart. (laughs) Parisa, can you explain these jokes to Pega? (laughs) Instagram, CastBox. If you'd like to see visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube. Uh, And if you want to see your descriptions of bulletins in English and in Persian, uh, follow us on Telegram. You can support us 
by going to our Patreon page. You do that by just just go to the website rookmedia.com and press the support us button. It makes a big difference to us. It's only a, a few bucks a month uh, and it really, really helps us stay alive. We appreciate those of you who have already become Rook members and those of you that haven't, if you're regular listeners or viewers of our program, we'd love you to become part of the team. Uh, the Patreon page linked to our website, rookmedia.com, where you press support us if you are so interested. All right, here we go. Let's get to our feature guest. My feature guest today is an internationally recognized Iranian-American human rights expert and the co-founder of the Center for Human Rights in Iran. Hadi Qa'emi was born and raised in Iran. He moved to the United States in 1983 and got his doctorate in physics from Boston University and served as a physics professor at the City University of New York until the year 2000. The Center for Human Rights in Iran is a prominent organization documenting human rights abuses in Iran and forming global co coalitions for human rights support. Prior to his work at the CHRI, Hadi worked with Human Rights Watch and he worked hard at addressing civil society repression issues in Iran and right now. Mr. Hadi Qa'emi joins me from New York. Hello, sir. Hello, Jim. Pleasure to be with you again. Nice to have you back on the program. I, I actually feel bad that, I mean, this is your life, but I feel bad that whenever you come on a program like this, it's it's to address difficulties and atrocities and sadness in the world. But I suppose that's your, you're used to that at this point. Uh, yes, I mean, especially when you work on a country like Iran, uh, unfortunately, it is just a constant stream of uh, atrocities and bad news. Uh, but uh, I hope we get a chance to talk later in the program. I actually had a very uplifting conversation this morning with a number of young girls in the city of Mashhad about how they feel about the environment, given they're the ones who are really living it. We're observing, analyzing, and trying to help as much as we can. Uh, but yes, these are very sad times, and uh, yet uh, I'm hoping the people on the ground will come from these disturbances stronger and more determined than ever. I'll be sure to make that the last question, to ask you about what the uplifting conversation was you had today. We actually have some some team members here from Mashhad, so this will be a, a welcome story to hear. Uh, let me start with less positive news. Um, this This past week... We heard this horrible news, of course, that young Armita Geravand had died. This is the 16-year-old the uh, who had been in an alter altercation, uh, as far as we know, with hijab police on a subway in Tehran. Subsequently, she hit her head. She, of course, was in a coma for a few weeks, was declared brain dead, and now has passed away. Uh, you've been posting about this and talking about this, of course. Uh, what, what do you think the death of Armita represents? Uh, well, um, it really has significance on multiple fronts. First and foremost, coming almost in one year after the death of Mahsa Amini, I think it is a very, very big alert for Iranian women. If you remember when Mahsa Amini uh, was killed last year in detention, the reason she became such a symbol of the uh, woman life freedom um, movement was because every Iranian woman could identify with her. Mm. Every Iranian man and woman, actually, every family mm. um, who worried about their female members leaving the house. So 
given what happened to Mahsa, it really resonated with Iranian women. And now we can have a similar case, which is uh, being framed or understood at least among the general public as very similar to Mahsa Amini's. We don't have the details. We don't want to jump into conclusions. But it is very clear that the Iranian government has been uh, completely uh, trying to uh, obfuscate and not allow any transparency. And that alone is enough cause for concern, especially now that she has passed away. Uh, We believe the Iranian government doesn't want her name and face and what happened to her to be known. Her family is under tremendous pressure and there's been absolutely zero information about what happened. If the claim of the government that this was a just a regular passenger on a train who had a fall for whatever reason, not due to any kind of attack. Um, And it was a very, very quick altercation. Whatever happened in that train court from the videos we see, I think it had some background. Something must have happened. Some people must have followed her into that car train. It is uh, very, very strange that a 16-year-old would have low blood pressure just fall off hit her head and die that that doesn't happen and if it really did happen why aren't they open about it why aren't they bringing the medical records letting the family and people knowledgeable to talk freely journalists to look into it uh so for now it has uh if anything reinforced the iranian woman's determination that if they do not continue their struggle each and every one of them is a potential victim, like Armita and Mahsa, because yeah. these were ordinary girls who left home uh, the, just to live their regular lives, and they never returned. So this is what the Iranian woman want to put an end to it. And again, I want to say we don't have information, but all the circumstantial evidence points to the fact that uh, she did not die of natural death and the fact that there is no medical information coming out and the government going out of its way to hide the truth is all the more uh, reason to believe that uh, this was a major event and should uh, the government should be held accountable but 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 here is something we do know and i i point this out with some uh, some sadness or or i i I, with with lament it, it, it is not hard to notice, Hadi, that despite the the many comparisons one can make to the death of the killing of Masa Amini, and, and you just made the case yourself um, almost exactly a year earlier, um, there is a difference this time in that there is no widespread international outcry. Of course, organizations like your one, yours are, are right. taking it up, but, but there isn't a big global push. There isn't uh, the uprising in the streets that there was in Iran, not even amongst Iranians who were so mobilized in the diaspora last year. There isn't the same kind of vocal and, and passionate response. Um, there's a lot of reasons for this, as we, as we know, but wh- why do you think, what would you put at the top of the list of, of, why, of what the difference is one year later? Uh, Well, as you mentioned, there are a lot of reasons. The situation has uh, changed a lot. Internationally, as we all know, uh, the entire world is up in flames. From Ukraine to Gaza to Israel, uh, we are seeing the international community consumed by these terrible wars that are, in a way, just starting in the region. And uh, it's consuming many, many quarters. uh, But... uh, 
I still think the case of Armita was resonating inside Iran. You're correct. There were no large scale protests uh, because people, I think, have learned a lesson from last year that the regime is willing to go to any extent of atrocities and killing of them uh, to keep them out of the streets. And it doesn't mean they have given up streets. Indeed, it's the only pushback mechanism they have against the repression. Uh, but uh, I think this time they want to come out more organized and more directed. And that means that uh, both inside and outside the country, we need to see the emergence of not necessarily a leadership, but groups and entities that can represent these people who will come to the street and articulate their mm. demands and have a roadmap. So I know that within Iran, people are working on it. Of course, outside Iran, people have been trying for years and continue to do so. But the most hopeful I am is the interactions happening under the surface between Iranian society and the diaspora to coordinate and this time come out in a protest movement that has uh, more ability to really push back against the Islamic Republic. Just throwing your life on the line right. and getting killed right now is not going to resolve anything. What really matters, people are not on the streets, but the women especially are continue every day to break the hijab rule yes. and push back on that. And yes. that is frustrating the government. I think that will all come together at a time when the people in the country decide it's the appropriate moment. We cannot predict it, but the energy, the anger, and the determination to continue Mahsa revolution, to evolve it to the next stage is absolutely inside Iran. And that's what keeps me hopeful. It's totally understandable for those inside Iran um, to have extreme trepidation about wanting to go out on the streets um, after the nature of the, 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 the crackdowns we've seen over the years, including now over the last uh, tw 12 months, etc. Um, and so one doesn't feel responsible in saying, why aren't you out on the streets? But for those of us in the diaspora, uh, it is it is deflating. I mean, there isn't the same kind of, um, um, you know, uh, stakes in terms of going out on the street in San Francisco or Sydney or Toronto. And to not see that kind of mobilization, do you think that um, in contradistinction to the much heralded unity that we were feeling at exactly this time last year as a global Iranian community. Do you feel like the cleavages that emerged or some of the divisions, some of them over silly things, some of them over longstanding different ideologies, et cetera, that emerged amongst the so-called opposition uh, leaders and, and opposition peoples uh, over the, the, the months throughout the spring and into the summer, do you think that is part of what has kind of... Um, um, undermined the, the momentum for those outside of Iran? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, look, the diaspora itself is still doesn't have a very unified and strong uh, engine that would move it forward. There is not, and no entity has, again, we, I, I want to emphasize that, uh, especially young people in Iran, are not looking for the man on the white horse or woman on the white horse to come and save them. There, There is a very actually anti-heroic approach to political leadership. Uh, 
But there is no question that organization and group thinking is needed. And just like inside in the, in the diaspora also, we have seen diffusion of all the energy that was collected and gathered last year. And no one place has been able to come and direct that energy in a way that would be representative of the large parts of diaspora. Uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, it's again a question of gui uh, guiding it in a collective and determined way in, within the framework of a, a collective entity. Um, again, there are people coming together and trying to fill that vacuum, but we do... Uh, that, that's what Iranian government has been really good over the years and actually yes. has been able to uh, constantly break down diaspora movements and pit them against each other very smartly, just as it has inside Iran yes. prevented any networks to shape. But you're right, in the diaspora, we can be smarter and definitely have this space to move forward. Um, I don't want to make excuses, but the bottom line is that we're not as united as we thought we were. Exactly. And, and not to take anything away from those who are putting in, including some of these opposition leaders, et cetera, who are, yeah. who are working as hard as they are. But, uh, but uh, yes, it's a, it's a concern. It, when we mm. talk about the death of Armita Geravand, there's a, there's a second part to the story, which was there was a funeral held. I mean, this just gets so, uh, if not infuriating, depressing to talk about. So there's a funeral held for Armita, um, at which reports say there were more plainclothes police than there were even, you know, uh, attendees, um, uh, sort of keeping 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 an eye on the mourners. Um, human rights, famous human rights lawyer Nasrin Sotudeh was there. She gets detained, and and she may have even. Um, um, been roughed up. What what happened with Nasrin Sotadeh at the funeral for Armita? Do we do we know the exact story now? Uh, yes, her husband has been speaking out and explaining what happened. And before I go into detention of Sotadeh, which is very disconcerting, I just want to point out the horrific policy of Islamic Republic, especially as a religious entity, it cloaks itself in the name of religion, but the way it has behaved toward the dead and the survivors who want to uh, have uh, burials or rituals that are common for uh, in this situation, we call it the right, the denial of the right to mourn. It has happened so much. I mean, a lot of instances, they even have stolen the body and buried it in an unknown place and only let the family know later. So it's horrific that even when this 16 year old girl, her family wants to give her a burial, they will prevent that from happening in a proper way or people who want to participate. So obviously there were a number of people who showed up at the funeral, including Nasrin Sutude, who went there without hijab. They immediately targeted her and with violence and beating, they took her away. And she's a very determined person. They mm. took her to Evin prison where she refused to put on the hijab and the garb that was required and her resistance for hours forced them to take her to an all-woman prison somewhere else, Karchak, where she had served before as a prisoner. Um, but we're very worried for her because we know those first few weeks really do matter in terms of international attention. We know she has over 30 years of uh, incarceration. Um, 
that they could implement. So we have actually been uh, the raising alarms with the UN and uh, governments that they have to really advocate for her to be released now. If during this few weeks we are silent, unfortunately, there would be uh, the potential of long-term imprisonment under the previous prosecution she has had. Uh, what is really uh, sad is that two women in Iran who could really be and are the face and the uh, driving force of this movement for years, one Nargis Mohammadi, who just won the Nobel Prize a few weeks ago, and now Nasrin Sutude, both of them are in jail. And I think for governments and international community, if they want to lend any helping hand to the Iranian people, the best and most prominent thing they can do is advocate for release of Nargis and Nasrin. Can I ask you, and maybe it seems uh, counterintuitive, but I... I, I... And, and and again, as well, maybe it's a fool's game to try and apply logic to what the Iranian regime does. But there is usually some studied kind of um, idea behind what they're what they're doing. Why would the regime keep detaining and torturing someone like in the case of Nasrin Sotoudeh, who has become an international name? And she did win the, the Sakharov Prize. She does have a documentary in, in her name. She is somebody that people know. Wouldn't they be drawing more attention by doing that? I mean, why wouldn't they just let her go? Uh, no, we've seen that's not their calculation. Look, uh, almost in every kind of uh, detentions of many, many innocent people, including dual nationals, including foreigners, including prominent people like Nargis and Nasrin. The calculation of the regime is that it can withstand the international blowback and can resist it. And it's more fearful of these people becoming active as uh, social, as uh, guidance for the larger society. Having them outside to them is terrifying. So I think with regard to Nasrin, actually, they were looking for an excuse hmm. this entire past year. She had been very careful. She's, she had been out for a couple of years on medical uh, furlough. Uh, she does suffer from uh, medical conditions that she did not want to go back to prison. But obviously, someone like her is eventually is going to be part of this very public movement. And this was a very proper thing to come out to a burial and a funeral. It should not have been such a high risk moment. But I think the regime was actually looking for any excuse to put her back in prison. And now the question is, will it pay enough of a price in terms of international pressure, which I think it can happen, especially with regard to the recent attentions to the movement, um, that then they would be forced to um, release her. So I think the regime is really testing the will of the international community and the focus of it. Again, we know the international community also consumed with the war in Gaza yeah, and the yeah. humanitarian catastrophe unfolding there. Uh, so the regime hopes to get away with it, and it's the job of organizations and movements like us to make sure that we do everything we can uh, to bring about that pressure for her release. Otherwise, the regime has won. In terms of what the regime is doing, in September, Hadi, you did an interview on NPR, at least you were quoted on NPR, um, talking about the the ongoing and brutal crackdown on dissent by, by the, re the regime in the Islamic Republic. Uh, and you said the repression has entered a new phase. Um, what is that new phase in your view? 
Well, that new phase is probably be, be, be best described by what international women's rights uh, campaigners have been framing as gender apartheid. Uh, in case of Afghanistan and Iran, they want the international law to define the crime of apartheid beyond racial apartheid, which is the most common one we're familiar with, especially in case of South Africa, that now what we're seeing and have been seeing in places like Afghanistan and Iran uh, are collective punishments of women and our form of a gender apartheid. That's the new phase I'm seeing with the determination to go after the very large segment of society, not just dissidents, not just activists, not just people who uh, threaten their power, but uh, the entire society by punishing anyone who does not wear the hijab, they will take their jobs away, deny them social services, close their bank accounts, kick them out of universities. All of that already happening. Actually, just today, the UN Secretary General um, released his annual report on human rights in Iran and uh, publicly stated that he's very concerned about all the Iranian actresses who have been banned from performing or making any more movies or basically doing their work uh, due to re their refusal to wear hijab uh, over the last year or their public statements against it. Uh, so that new phase is this collective punishment that is gonna go way beyond imprisonment and really make life of people on a daily basis not sustainable. I mean, to, to, to not be able to work, have healthcare, have a bank account, driver's license. These are very, very serious punishments that are targeting a very large segment of the society. On that note, uh, and notwithstanding the story you're gonna tell us in a few minutes at the end about about what you heard from the, the girls in Mashhad today, but, um, you know, the, 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 the name of this episode is um, Are We Back Where We Started? And um, um, we, we've tended to try and drive the conversation uh, around, look at the progress that has been made over the last year due to this uprising. We did a, an episode in the beginning of you know, mid-September that was the one-year anniversary of the, the killing of Masa Amini. We brought 15 prominent guests on. They all said, no, look at how far things have changed. We've, we've made a big dent. We've, we've, uh, things have gone a long way. Uh, on the other hand, um, the repression is greater than it's ever been. The regime is still in place. People like Nasreen are still getting um, arrested. People like Ar Armita are still being tragically killed. The regime seems to have solidified its relationship with countries in the region around it. It's got the, the pipelines of, uh, of China and Russia. Uh, can we at this point actually say that we've made progress uh, that the Iranian people and those in the diaspora who so passionately wanted to see this uprising as 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 a movement that is is making progress, can we actually say we've made that progress at this point? Yes, I absolutely believe we have. And I want to note something very common I hear from inside Iran, which is that this is a marathon, not a short distance race, first of all. And second of all, the biggest accomplishment that happened in my mind, in my framework of looking at Iran, is the fact that between September and January of last year, when we had hundreds of thousands all over the country in the streets, 
there was a very important development happened because you know Iran is a closed society there is no free media no freedom of expression so people in around the country don't know uh, what is the collective thinking there is no way to discuss the domestic situation among themselves even in private right and of course you know it's a big country of 88 million people what happened was suddenly we realized that a large very large segment of the society according to some polls conducted by gaman institute as many as 80 percent of the population is rejecting the islamic republic wholeheartedly is no longer saying they have to change this or they have to change that the regime change mentality i think that was the biggest accomplishment of mm. the movement mm. that people found each other yes and heard each other thinking the same way chanting the same way having the same attitude toward why the islamic republic should go that is huge a huge awakening of the social and political consciousness now none of us are in iran the media doesn't get to travel there are no independent uh, uh, observers there to give the fabric of the society so i think the other accomplishment i understand is just from talking to young women especially 16 to 25 year olds in iran uh, they're very hopeful and they're going out without hijab i mean it, it may be a new phase of repression and gender apartheid but it's being resisted wholeheartedly mm. and uh, the number of young women and middle-aged women and all kind who refuse to observe the hijab and they know they may lose their life over it but yeah. it has become their yeah. major vehicle in that sense it's a progress a strategic technically we yeah. have not figured out how to translate that into a situation where the government has to keep a stepping back I don't think this the government has stepped forward much. Actually, the wounds are open. It has failed. Any government that finds a large portion of its um, people against it, particularly because of killing children or such atrocities, after so many months may try to come back with some kind of a reconciliatory move to bring back yeah. at least 10, 20% yeah. of that pop. We see none of that in Iran. So for me, the lines haven't moved but the social consciousness and the collective confidence of the people is a sign of progress and the fact that everybody inside and outside at least underground talking about a roadmap or a, yeah. or a plan for getting rid of Islamic Republic is something we simply did not have. We weren't sure if the majority of Iranians want the regime to go so strongly. So having realized that and themselves realizing that to me, in this marathon is a step forward. It's an excellent, excellent point it, it, that the, the and, and a good reminder, the consolidation of the notion that the regime must go, no more blurriness around reform or not reform or anything like that. Now it's, it's, it, that is, that is the, the new orthodoxy is regime must go. Although that is the case for Iranians. I don't necessarily know that that's the case for the rest of the world in the way they see Iran, unfortunately. And I mean, we've talked about that in terms of at least 
pre pre uh, October seventh and the latest uh, episodes uh, and Iran's involvement um, in uh, with the Israel and Hamas, etc. We talked about the the potential for the the Biden administration working around trying to develop a new nuclear deal and and uh, some kind of rapprochement and this type of thing. So um, so not everybody's heard the message that the regime must go that Iranians seem to feel. I, on that note, there's something that I. I talked about on our program on Monday that I just want to put your way and see see if you have any thoughts on it. It's very concerning to me the way the current the regime the the Islamic Republic regime um, is p- potentially um, seeing an opportunity in this um, Israel uh, well I'm seeing many opportunities in this Israel Hamas in this uh, horrible uh, situation and now war that's going on. Um, the foreign minister, Amir Abdullahian, was on CNN again this past weekend. Uh, they seem to like him. They've had him on a couple of times. Um, and it's always a concern because he's just sort of spouting nonsense that, that doesn't always get fact-checked. The interviewer did a pretty good job. But I noticed that he was very much on message about the liberation of Palestine and the Palestinian people against the imperialists and and it occurred to me that, and wherever the Iranian people may, wherever their affections or their support may be or solidarity, whether it's with Israel or, or the um, desperately feeling bad for the people in Gaza right now or whatever it is, it occurred to me that for people who aren't super engaged, for non-Iranians maybe who don't know who this guy is and what the regime is capable of, they might, and and if they are sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, like a lot of students on campuses, left wing students yes. in North America, they may watch this guy and go, "Oh, he's an ally. Listen to him. He's talking about freedom and and liberation. And there's our our guy. I guess the regime is our friend. How do we contend with that?" Yes, yes, it's very difficult. But let me first just say when. Going back to whether the international community heard the message from the movement last year or not, and the, all the uh, interactions that governments have with the Iranian government is very disheartening, given that it seems to ignore the Iranian people's plight most of the time. But the international community itself, I see it on one hand, are governments and power centers and militaries, um, the centers of hard power. And then there is the rest of us, which is the media and experts and cultural institutions and non-governmental entities. And on that front, actually, I think the movement has remained alive Mm. just by the recognition that the Nobel Committee gave to Nargis Mohammadi. You know, that that to me uh, competes and may not appear as powerful as uh, Iran rebuilding its relationship diplomatically with Saudi Arabia before these events or other steps that seem to bring it back to the fold of the governments in the region and even in the West. Uh, uh, but uh, let's remember that governments are always going to pursue their own interests, whereas the rest of us are going to have a more of a moral campus and be more human right. than just right. be focused on uh, hard power. Uh, So on that front, there are still recognitions of what Iranian people want. But with regard to what you're saying, that the average Western citizen who may be sympathetic to Palestinians suddenly see Iran or Iranian officials as reasonable supporters of their cause, 
I hope that's not the case, but you're right. A simple-minded person may look at someone like Abdullahi and speaking perfect English on CNN and say, oh, he's in my camp and I'm going to, you know, uh, count him as an ally. Uh, that is really misguided because uh, not Hamas, not Hezbollah, not the Iranian government, um, none of these entities as political entities are going to have much respect for basic human freedoms and human life. And unfortunately, uh, the Palestinian issue is so complex that we see these people are using it for their advancement of their own political and military goals. And we have to explain to <coughs> people that actually this government, what it does to its own people should be the measure of judging it, not mm. what it says about Palestinians or the war in Gaza. The, the, I mean, the regime makes no secret of its anti-Israel stance. There, there were reports in the last couple of days of a new edict where any expressed support of Israel by Iranian citizens inside Iran uh, will now be considered a criminal offense. This is real thought police stuff. Do, do, does I guess does this surprise you? No, not at all. I mean, the regime has used propaganda against Israel and pretty much uh, repressed any discussion of. Israel as a nation, its existence, we know on international forums, they deny the existence of the country. So it has already been a crime, or the space hasn't existed for saying anything that would be critical of their policies in the region. And now during this war, I think they're just grandstanding. I mean, Iranians are understanding. Iranians have been chanting for 25 years and I do not want to say they don't have sympathy for what's happening in Gaza, yeah. but they have been rejecting their government's uh, emphasis on supporting groups like Hezbollah and Hamas for 25 years in the street when they say it is not Hamas, it's not Hezbollah, my main issue, it's, you know, our lives right here. So uh, but the, the regime's afraid of its policies being challenged, not in terms of Iranians not supporting Palestinians, but in terms of not supporting the regime in the way that it pretends to be supporting Palestinians. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it is uh, it, it, it needs to be explained for the general public. Yeah, I was I was disappointed to see there was an article in the New York Times uh, yesterday um, and uh, it's, it was a sort of strange argue, uh, article about Iran faces a dilemma about whether to go to war or not. Um, the way it was written was very strange, perhaps not not that strange if you if you know who it was written by. But it was, but the the the, the photos they only used photos uh, from inside Iran that were pro uh, that were marches in support of Hamas and, and Palestine. And um, and which I thought was incredibly misleading. You know, again, for the average person watching the New York Times, looking at the New York Times, they go, "Oh, so the Iranian ninety million Iranian people, uh, you know, are, are all on one side of this thing and all oppose Israel and all of that." And it's by any measure, it's 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 a lot more nuanced than that. But this team, this seems to be the Western narrative. You know? Yeah, and and it goes back to the fact that again, when someone looks at Iran, it's, uh, it's very common to just look at the government and its policies yeah, and not the people and not the culture and not what the social fabric is. Uh, 
and part of it again is that none of us are there nobody's on the ground i'm sure that if we were in the ground uh my understanding over the years is that majority of the people do want the palestinian people to be free and be able to live decent lives and not be in constant crisis but at the same time they do not see that support of groups like hezbollah or hamas helps that cause and as we can see if anything what i my biggest criticism of iranian government's policies in the region is that especially with regard to palestinians is that they have killed all venues or helped to close all mm. venues for political solutions and have made and i i must say almost all political actors in the region and beyond were involved yeah. uh, have been setting themselves up for a military solution which does not exist and only results in disaster and loss of life it is always uh um an education and uh, uh speaking with you and i'm so grateful for the time you've given us today i know it's a very very busy time for you and you're Thank you're you. quite in demand uh before i let you go you had an uplifting phone call today what was it yes so as i mentioned one of the biggest uh shortcomings of uh, everybody working talking or looking at iran from any um, uh, position is that none of us are inside the country and we didn't, don't really hear what goes on uh, in detail there we don't observe it we don't have tangible a sense of where the society is. So one of the things we try to do is constantly find through our networks, large groups of ordinary people to talk to. And today we were fortunate to be able to hear about what's happening in the city of Mashhad in general. And at least in one quarter where there are people, musicians and artists and cultural people who have, um, who have classes for teenagers and young people. They teach them voice lessons, they teach them painting, you know. Uh, actually, a lot of this kind of activities happen in the country, private in the private uh, homes. So I was hearing uh, from a teacher and students engage in this, uh, that how these 16, 17 year old girls are so fearless and they say they will not wear the hijab because they don't wanna go back to be the person they were which was subjugated and repressed. And when their teachers brings up Armita or the dangers of, you know, this could get you killed. Uh, first of all, they're very happy to be engaged in a artistic or singing activity, mm -hmm. uplifting activities. And they say that I'm ready to give up my life so that life can resume in this country. Let's wow. remember that the biggest demand young people were saying on the streets when interviewed was one phrase, I want a normal life. Yeah. A normal life means to be able to be feel happiness based on your own terms yeah. and live it with actions and activities that make you happy. So they were like, I will not wear the hijab and um, we're uplifted we're optimistic even if you lose our life it's for the purpose of restoring life to our community and actually they were telling us that you guys also don't be too depressed we know that everything is very sad but we're going to make sure that on you know on a daily basis we find a re reason for joy and this singing this coming to this class not wearing the hijab 
um, all of these things are actions that uh, kept them going and they're not giving it up That's so amazing. Uh, that was very interesting talking to wow. people who are actually experiencing uh, the most horrific aspects of this government's policies. And yet they have decided through remaining happy, hopeful, and actively making themselves and people around themselves happy. Not only that, not only that, Hadijan, they, they, they were born into this this uh, yes. Islamic Republic, right? They don't, they don't personally remember a time that was any different, and yet exactly. they have the tools to know that this is wrong and that they, exactly. that they want to create change. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah, and they're rejecting it. So actually, I have a lot of hope in the 16 to 25-year-old segment of the society who were the so-called Generation Z, and they were in front of the movement. Uh, and uh, it was not just one, you know, a special moment for them. This mm. has become the cause of their life, it seems like. And just by taking off the hijab and engaging in activities the government disapproves of, at least on a daily basis, they're keeping it alive. Thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you, Gian. It was a pleasure talking to you as always. Good to see you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Hadiqa Emi in New York. Always good to talk to him. This is full time for Rook for today. For all things Rook related, including our back episodes, our videos, all of our content, rookmedia.com is the website. Rookmedia.com. Well, you can also support us by pressing the support us button. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Super Parisa, Smart Pega, Talented Anahita, Savvy Rohan, Bearded Omid, and Methodical Kaveh. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Do subscribe if you've not done so already on any or all of our platforms. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever, Mizun Bashi.